You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The Filipino guerrillas were all but finished, but not U.S. opponents of the war. The grim news reports from Samar, along with General Jacob Smith's provocative pronouncements, had revived calls in the United States for a review of the military's conduct in the Philippines. The usual suspects at the Anti-Imperialist League, along with best-selling author Mark Twain, continued to crank out pamphlets and books denouncing America's actions in the islands. On Capitol Hill, the Philippines still stirred passions like no other issue. An ongoing Senate debate over a tariff bill for the islands had become the latest pretext for Democrats and Republicans to reprise their arguments over duty and national honor. The prospect of an even more riveting drama now loomed, for Republican Senator George Frisbee Hoare had goaded the President and Senator Henry Cabot Lodge into holding hearings that would examine alleged U.S. abuses in the islands. Now, as they prepared to receive the nation's military officers in the White House Blue Room, Roosevelt and Root could only hope that any damaging revelations could be contained behind the closed doors of the Senate committee hearings set to get underway the following morning. For two hours, Roosevelt and the First Lady, her hair glittering with diamond side combs and blue ostrich tips, exchanged pleasantries with a long line of diplomats and soldiers that stretched through the Blue Room. As the procession filed past the president, General Miles commanded his own crowd of well-wishers. Tall and handsome, the vain veteran of Civil War and Indian campaigns was popular within the Army, and a recent public scolding by Roosevelt had not set well with many Americans. Miles and his wife took their places in line and soon stood before the president. As countless eyes looked on, the recent antagonist smiled and exchanged cordial greetings. It was all for show. The contempt the Roosevelt and his army commander held for each other was deep and unbridled, and it was about to explode into open conflict over the issue of U.S. military abuses in the Philippines. Greg Jones is a Pulitzer Prize finalist whose work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and other papers. His new book is Honor in the Dust, Theodore Roosevelt, War in the Philippines, and the Rise and Fall of America's Imperial Dreams. Thank you for joining me, Greg. It's a pleasure. Greg, uh, as I finish this book, I could only think that we are those who have not learned from history, for surely, having read this book, we were doomed to repeat it. That, that was certainly the impression that I had in 2003, 2004, 2005, as I saw the United States, uh, Americans start to debate many of the same issues that played out in, uh, over the Philippines 100 years ago. What was the proper use of U.S. military power? What was the proper limits on that power? And also the tactics that were used in the pursuit of U.S. aims. Uh, is torture, for example, a legitimate tactic in the pursuit of those aims? And as I watched the country debate all of these things over Iraq, I, I really was struck by the fact that most Americans didn't know the history of what had happened in the Philippines and the debate, the very divisive debate the country had undergone. 
this is a really fabulous book. It's very much of a, kind of like a contemporary political thriller page turner, the, the way it's all laid out. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And what's fun, too, is to see how much is the same and how much things have changed at the beginning of this book. Spain is a terrifying world power, and we're uh, rather scared of uh, East Coast naval invasions to the point where they've got uh, homing pigeons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that uh, The United States, once the um, USS Maine, the, the cruiser, had blown up under mysterious circumstances in Havana Harbor in, in February 1898, there was this tremendous clamor for war. Theodore Roosevelt, who had galvanized an expansionist movement uh, that argued that the United States needed to expand beyond its shores to um, continue economic prosperity and to also uh, compete with the European powers for global influence, uh, had wanted this war, had in fact written to friends that I think we need a war. And so once this tragic event happened in Havana Harbor, the pressure that Roosevelt and other expansionists, and then the newspapers owned by William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, uh, brought to bear on President William McKinley was was tremendous. And uh, once McKinley was finally persuaded in April of 1898 that we had to go to war, there there was these uh, uh, frenzied uh, preparations got underway. Uh, as you know, East Coast mayors were quite concerned that their cities were going to be bombed by the Spanish fleet. Roosevelt had. Uh, taken uh, old Civil War monitors out of mothballs and pressed them into service so they could provide some security. And uh, then the, the, the one that I do enjoy most was the early warning system that was developed, which was uh, the use of homing pigeons, which would be taken out to sea on, uh, on U.S. ships. And once the Spanish fleet was sighted, the homing pigeons would be released and they would return to their, to their roosts well before any U.S. ship could make that journey. It's so interesting to see that whole setup of the world, particularly with the sinking of the Maine, which has echoes of, um, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin incident and, and so many other incidents that were uh, used as a pretext for, for a modern war. It's also interesting, too, to see the, that the Civil War still had a, a big reach and a big place in American life. A lot of the people here were veterans of the Civil War. They had fought in the Civil War. So the South and North were still uh, engaged in a little bit of proxy uh, uh, combat there. Absolutely. The, the Civil War, there were echoes uh, in many ways uh, throughout this story, throughout this period, and, uh, as the 19th century drew to a close. As you noted, many of the Army officers had entered the service during the Civil War. Their careers, largely, most of them had stalled then in the decades that followed, and, and some won a measure of glory in the Indian Wars. Those were winding down by the late 1880s, and so you had a number of officers that had entered the service and uh, careers were, were really in the twilight years by the time the 1890s uh, rolled around. So they were uh, hoping for one last grab at glory, which uh, uh, the war with Spain, the Spanish-American War, certainly offered. At the same time, the debate over expansion somewhat broke down along party lines, but, but it, it, it also transcended party lines. Uh, but the Democrats in the South, which were, were 
to a large extent confined in the Deep South, used the issue of expansion and annexation of the Philippines to beat up on the Republicans. And so you did have these, these sectional rivalries that, that were still continuing to play out. The Spanish-American War, to some extent, actually did reunite the sections, and Theodore Roosevelt uh, emphasized that quite a bit, that he had actually served when, when he was with the Rough Riders in Cuba. He had, he had served under General Joseph Wheeler, uh, fighting Joe Wheeler, a former uh, Confederate cavalry commander. So Roosevelt liked to underscore that. He liked to underscore the other uh, former Confederate generals that were serving in the American uh, colonial administration in the Philippines to uh, emphasize how the, the expansion and, and America's rise as a world power had actually reunited the country. Well, it's so interesting, too, to see the, uh, the political campaigning <clears throat> and the press campaigning, too. I mean, uh, we had, uh, so describe the, uh, the situation uh, that got the Maine into that bay. And it was Guantanamo Bay, wasn't it? Uh, actually, Havana Harbor. Yeah, Havana Harbor. Uh, was, uh, Guantanamo became the uh, logistical base for right. the U.S. invasion mm -hmm. of Cuba. And that's how we, we got uh, our foothold <laughs> in uh, Cuba. The, the Marines had actually gone ashore there. The Maine was, first of all, the, the symbolism of the Maine was significant because it was part of this naval buildup that had started occurring in the late 1880s and then, and then gained uh, speed in the, in the 1890s. The expansionist Theodore Roosevelt, his good friend Henry Cabot Lodge, Naval Captain Alfred Thayer Mann all advocated a larger Navy which would allow the United States to take its place among the great nations of the world and to project its power around the world. And so the Maine was one of the early fruits of this effort and it was launched uh, with, with uh, great fanfare, great celebration and, and uh, uh, the New York Times had, had waxed on. Uh, about how the, the Maine represented all that was great about America, and it, and it was a truly American ship. So in early 1898, Spain was facing a revived revolutionary movement in Cuba, that Cuban guerrillas were fighting for independence, and they had won the support of Roosevelt and other expansionists a number of Americans felt that, that we should support the Cuban Revolutionary Movement on humanitarian grounds. Uh, obviously, there were some ulterior motives there. Roosevelt wanted to see Spain removed from the Western Hemisphere. And so you had those people that, that supported the Cuban Revolutionary Movement because they saw it as an opportunity to expel Spain from the hemisphere. So the Maine was sent down there ostensibly on, to make a courtesy call. And uh, you had U.S. Uh, officers going ashore, going ashore for bullfights, uh, inviting uh, diplomats and other dignitaries aboard the ship for luncheons and banquets and things. But the Maine was really there to keep an eye on what was happening. The end game, it seemed, was playing out in Cuba that, that Spain was uh, uh, a dying power. Uh, its economy was... Um, uh, was crumbling. And so the United States and other European powers were all sniffing around Cuba because they saw opportunity. The great game, the colonial game, was uh, in full throes in Africa and Asia. 
And so uh, Cuba suddenly seemed to be in play. And so the United States sent the main there, and uh, the Germans had warships there and other European powers. Uh, the main, which was uh, one of the ships uh, uh, sort of created by Teddy Roosevelt's drive to modernize the Navy. Absolutely. It, it, it was... Uh, as I said, it, it, it was very symbolic of a rising America, of an America that was determined to take its place alongside the European powers. And so its launching and its modern armaments and all of those things really thrilled the expansionist. And Roosevelt had played a significant role in this naval buildup that produced the Maine and other ships. We... <coughs> Uh, William Randolph Hearst had us uh, fighting a war before we were even fighting the war. It's kind of mind-boggling to read about this journalism, these <laughs> <Right>. people <laughs> who were like writing about victories when we hadn't even uh, really launched, uh, landed the, uh, the army yet. Right. The, uh, once war was declared in April of 1898, the country was awash in patriotic fervor and flags and speeches and, and all of those things that, that go along with a war that, that has popular support, as the Spanish-American War largely did. And so you, you had this great expectation over the invasion of Cuba, the whipping of Spain that, that was certain to happen. But it, it didn't happen quickly, and, and that frustrated many Americans. The general that was put in charge of American forces, General Rufus Shafter, wasn't uh, exactly the most energetic of generals. And it was, uh, in his defense, a logistical nightmare. We had to get this army and all the supplies down to Florida to prepare for, to, to move this invasion force uh, uh, the 90 miles from uh, the southern tip of Florida over to Cuba. And it just wasn't happening quickly enough for many Americans. And so Hearst's papers started creating fictional uh, landings. And, and so they had the American army going ashore in dramatic fashion, fighting, uh, uh, fighting off the Spaniards and pushing inland all before the ships had ever left Florida, which was pretty, uh, pretty much par for the course of the yellow uh, press of the day. Well, I... I as we read this book, it just seems like it's practically a, a alternate version of contemporary history. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. Now, as you, I'd like to just ask because I think this is very well written. This book is very tight, um, but it could easily have been, I guess, three times long, and maybe at some point it was. Could you talk about like grabbing all this history and orchestrating it and kind of turning it into uh, a you know, a uh, historical thriller, as it were. Well, th thank you. For, <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed the book. That I, I, I certainly devoted a, uh, a lot of time to writing it. That, that state-of-the-art narrative history, it, it has to entertain as well as inform. And uh, the challenge for me was to uh, frame the story and gather the material, write it in a, in a compelling cinematic fashion, uh, to write in scenes. But everything is documented. Uh, if, if you note, I, mm -hmm. I, there, there are many, many uh, end notes. And uh, I, I wanted the reader to be able to, to see, OK, where did he get this? Uh, what, what is this based on? And uh, 
for, for those who are fans of reading EndNotes that there are plenty uh, to, to read. When I started off writing this story, I, I, I was originally struck by the, um, the, the drama that had played out in the Philippines in 1902, the, mm-hmm. the series of courts martial involving U.S. Armor, uh, Army officers and, and a very famous Marine officer accused of committing war crimes in the Philippines. And that was really my beginning point, but as I got deeper into the research, I realized that, that I really needed to provide the context. How did we get to the Philippines? Why were we there? Why were we waging war on a fledgling Asian Republic, 1899 to 1902? And so I had to back up with the story and examine the, the roots of the expansionist movement. And I knew from the beginning that Theodore Roosevelt was central to the story. I must confess that I I didn't realize the extent to which he was consumed by the Philippines until I went back and read all his letters and and read his speeches and and realized really the extent to which Theodore Roosevelt was not only consumed but almost obsessed with the United States annexing the Philippines and then uh, conquering the Philippines once Filipino revolutionaries uh, contested U.S. control in the islands. So, so I wanted to cover all of that ground and, and lay, the, lay the groundwork in, in the Spanish-American War and, and really examine how did this glorious, thrilling rise of the United States as a world power in the Spanish-American War devolve into this brutal, very controversial conflict in the Philippine-American War that followed. Oh, I think that's one thing that you do really well, is that we get sucked up into the kind of the domestic politics and the international politics, the way that one leads the other to the next, and it just seems like this uh, all-too-familiar fall from grace. <laughs> uh, and one of the things I really liked is uh, the way that you create the, the character arc of, of Teddy Roosevelt and the, to make the politics familiar because it's kind of uh, surprise, shocking for me to, to realize how familiar all those political things were. I mean, they were going after uh, William Jennings Bryan saying he was a socialist who <laughs> was going to devolve and ruin our economy by not uh, pursuing these uh, uh, expansionist goals. And boy, I... <laughs> I'm thinking, boy, that this deja vu all over again. A, a lot of the rhetoric is uh, pretty familiar, isn't it? But uh, I, I was fascinated by that. More than 100 years ago, that, that rhetoric was being thrown around, uh, accusing the, the Democratic candidate of socialism and, and ruining the economy. And uh, so it, it was quite, quite fascinating to go back and to read uh, the campaign speeches, to, to read the campaign rhetoric, the campaign coverage. In the, the, the campaign of 1896, which, which really uh, set all these uh, events in motion, that uh, you had Republican William McKinley was trying to reclaim the White House for the Republicans, and the Democratic, uh, Democratic candidate was William Jennings Bryan, who was a populist. He was known as the great commoner. He had uh, wonderful oratorical skills, he, he did uh, favor some economic policies that worried a lot of people, particularly uh, people on the East Coast, that uh, he favored uh, what was known as free silver, uh, a, a currency uh, based on silver. 
And that uh, was really seized on by his political opponents as, as sort of their, their day's uh, voodoo economics, uh, if you will. That, and so uh, William Jennings Bryan was, was certainly demonized. Roosevelt, he, he was sent out as part of a packer of, of Republicans in uh, the 1896 uh, election as sort of the attack dogs uh, going after the Democratic candidate that uh, McKinley, who was a uh, very cautious by nature and, and not a particularly dynamic speaker, he, he was known for his earnestness. He retired to his porch in Canton, Ohio, and watched the, the campaign from there while these attack dogs were were sent out and the big railroads were bringing people who wanted to hear McKinley speak. They were facilitating transportation to Canton, Ohio, and so the faithful supporters of the Republican ticket and those that were undecided and were interested in hearing what McKinley had to say uh, could actually travel by rail, courtesy of the big railroads who supported Boy, the Republicans. So interesting. And, uh, uh, and so <laughs> McKinley would deliver these speeches from his porch in Canton, Ohio, while uh, Roosevelt and, and this other uh, uh, roadshow of, uh, of attack dogs were going around the country and describing uh, Bryan as a socialist who would uh, plunge the, the, the country uh, into class warfare and social unrest and would also uh, cause the United States to uh, lose respect abroad. Once we got our foothold into Cuba via Guantanamo Bay, by, by, by a pretty exciting battle that you describe very well, the, the battle descriptions in this are, are really good. It's, it's uh, uh, thrilling to read these things. Um, Talk about uh, recreating those things. Did you actually go to some of these battle scenes, the scenes of the battle, or did you just map this out on Google? I lived in the Philippines for five years from wow. uh, uh, 1984 to 1989, and mm -hmm. so I had, I'd been over much of the ground that I described. I wrote a book about the communist revolutionary movement in the Philippines that, uh, that came out in 1989, a book called Red Revolution. and. I had actually gone out in the countryside that the communist revolutionary movement in the Philippines was rather enigmatic, that it was, uh, as most underground organizations, it was very secretive, and uh, there were a lot of questions as to its leadership, its methods, and things. And so I had started doing this book, and I got access to the underground leaders and actually went out in the countryside and spent time with guerrilla units and with uh, revolutionary leaders. I had also spent time with the uh, Philippine Armed Forces and, and had, had covered uh, events in the country, uh, the People Power Revolution and other things that transpired there during those years. So I had traveled uh, widely in the Philippines, so I knew that area quite well. In, in Cuba, I was writing off uh, military reports, which were quite descriptive. When you're trying to, to set the scene, that uh, I, I spent a lot of time trying to find descriptions or photographs of plants and uh, villages, what did things actually look like, and work from things that would really help me paint this, this picture of uh, what things looked like, felt like, and, and smelled like. There were also a number of correspondents that were covering events there. Uh, it was fascinating to learn that Stephen Crane, the, the novelist that, uh, that we've all read in our American Lit classes, that Crane, who had written The Red Badge of Courage, which, which became this best-selling description of Civil War combat, had never witnessed combat when he wrote his, his novel. And so he was determined after writing that, that to witness combat. He felt like, well, I've written this best-selling book describing it, so I, I actually should go see what it's like. 
And so uh, he had spent time trying to get into Cuba and to go out with the Cuban guerrillas that were fighting against the Spaniards and uh, nearly drowned in the process when, when a, uh, a ship uh, sunk that he was on. But he eventually did get there once war broke out and, in fact, was there at Guantanamo when the Marines went ashore uh, in June of 1898, the first Americans ashore in Cuba. As you noted, that they had fi uh, faced three harrowing days of uh, combat with Spanish troops that were in the hills surrounding them. And so quite dramatic events, and Stephen Crane was, was there uh, uh, describing it all. And so I found his dispatches and the articles that he wrote from that to be uh, very helpful as well. Uh, this was where uh, Teddy Roosevelt made his mark when he first decided to uh, uh, create the Rough Riders. Everybody thought he was just going to uh, ruin his political career, and that proved not to be the case. And it, it's very interesting to read about his ride and his rise uh, in Cuba. That's correct. That Roosevelt is his opponents always like to say that he was mentally unstable, and uh, <laughs> maybe you know, they were right. <laughs> uh, uh, he, well, he, Roosevelt was certainly possessed manic en energy. Uh, he, he was an extraordinary character, like m most people, and certainly most great people. He, he was a very complicated man, and there, there's much to like about Theodore Roosevelt, mm. but there there are many other things are not exactly admirable. And he was Assistant Secretary of Navy when war broke out, and he had been uh, really pressuring President McKinley. For that year, he had been Assistant Sec Secretary of Navy, pressuring McKinley on the need to go to war with Spain. And he had secured uh, a promise from President McKinley that, that uh, he would be allowed to go serve in the Army if, if war came about. And so uh, Roosevelt resigned from the Navy Department even though he was in a very good position in Washington, he had a political career that was certainly on the rise, that he was in line for higher office. And so many people thought that he was insane for throwing all this away and leaving his wife and, and children and heading to Cuba. Roosevelt, though, to his credit, unlike many of our leaders over time and many of our contemporary leaders, believed that if you advocate war, you should be willing to fight. Roosevelt wasn't going to say, let's go to war, you guys go do it. He believed that he really did need to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And so uh, he went out and he raised this um, eclectic regiment of former Harvard chums and Eastern dandies and uh, a U.S. Open uh, a tennis champion and uh, an heir to the Tiffany fortune. And then some of the Western characters he had met during his time in the, the Dakota Badlands and, and on hunting trips to the West. So, so he had created this very uh, interesting and strange, in many ways, regiment. The press was uh, immediately smitten by this, and there was this great competition to come up with the perfect name that uh, some of them were, were very, very corny and bad. Teddy's Riot as Rounders and all sorts of, of strange names, and then finally the Rough Riders uh, stuck, and, uh, and so Roosevelt headed off to Cuba to fight with the Rough Riders. War in Cuba went pretty well, and we actually managed to make the uh, Spanish admiral, uh, Pascual Severa, he surrendered, and it was kind of the end of an era for Spain. The Spaniards really were um, at the end of, of their golden age, and uh, 
as I'd noted, that the economy was in ruins, that Spain continued to have it. Its largest colony was the Philippines out in the Pacific. And then in, uh, it had Guam, it had Cuba, it, it had Puerto Rico as well. Spain was not only um, economically bankrupt, but to a large extent, I think, uh, politically bankrupt as well, and was, was struggling to find its way at this point. The ground war, once it got underway in Cuba, went pretty easily uh, for the United States. That We, we had uh, Roosevelt's uh, dramatic charge when the American troops stormed up San Juan Hill, the San Juan Heights, uh, outside of Santiago de Cuba on July 1st of uh, 1898, which was a very uh, dramatic event. And within two weeks, the Spanish ground forces uh, were prepared to surrender. Uh, the, the Spanish fleet was, uh, was destroyed on July 3rd then, and that really ended the war. Admiral Severa, as you noted, attempted to break out from Santiago Bay, but U.S. ships were waiting. There had been a blockade. Was that Dewey who was in charge of those ships? Uh, no, actually, Dewey was over in, in, the uh, in the Philippines yeah. at the time. And so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we, we can talk about his dramatic feats, but uh, another U.S. fleet was mm -hmm. uh, standing off Cuba and destroyed the Spanish uh, fleet as it tried to escape. And that, for all intents and purposes, was the end of the war in Cuba. And I, I love the uh, General Shafter, who was this enormous man. He was so big, they had to haul him. He couldn't really walk, and they had to haul him around on a door. Right. <laughs> he, he had fallen ill. I mean, he, he wasn't exactly field fit, combat ready. Uh, as I noted that, that he was, as many of these officers were, he was near the end of his career and uh, was not in good physical condition, weighed about 300 pounds. 300, uh, to 350 pounds. It was tough duty in, in Cuba in the tropical climate and a lot of waterborne and mosquito-borne illnesses, malaria and fevers and things like that. And so he had fallen ill, as a number of U.S. soldiers were on Cuba. As things really reached a climax there, that he was feverish and uh, had to be carried into a critical council of war. As you noted, they laid him on a, on a door that had been taken off its hinges as a litter to uh, actually carry him into this war council. At the same time, we're paying attention to the Philippines. And uh, a, a guy who'd been a desk jockey for a number of years, uh, Admiral Dewey, got, got the call <laughs> to, to go into Manila Bay. And he seemed very ill-prepared <laughs> for this. And I love your characterizations in here because you do a great job of giving us a really uh, shaded and nuanced picture of these people. On one hand, we see them today, they're brave heroes, and Dewey was celebrated as a brave hero. But <laughs> he was really lucky, too, wasn't he? <laughs> he, he was. That uh, has, This happens a lot in history, uh, actually, of being, uh, you know, the proverbial being in the right place at the right time, that uh, Commodore George Dewey was uh, another uh, figure who... who who had served in the Civil War. He had, he had actually uh, served in the Navy under the legendary Union Naval Commander, uh, Admiral David Farragut. And Dewey had actually distinguished himself in the Civil War, had shown uh, bravery when a gunboat he was on, uh, on the Mississippi in the, in the Western Theater during the, during the Civil War came under fire and, and was sunk. And he had helped uh, rescue wounded sailors in the, in the water. So, uh, so Dewey had, had distinguished himself, but his career went in decline in the decades that followed. As you noted, he had become a desk jockey that he increasingly spent very little time at sea. At one point, he was head of the lighthouse 
board, so in, engaged in such uh, serious discussions as uh, whether whale oil uh, ought to be used in America's uh, lighthouses or, or something else. And, uh, but he was known as a, as a dapper dresser, and uh, he, was a, he was a very vain man, kept himself fit. There was a wonderful moment as he began this phase of his career where he was in Washington serving on, on various uh, naval boards and things, and his, his wife had tragically died much, much earlier after giving birth to one, one of their, their sons. Dewey was squiring around a couple of uh, younger women, uh, taking them aboard a naval ship, and he ran into uh, one of his sons. He was so vain about his age that he introduced his son as his younger brother uh, to uh, to these uh, uh, women, and uh, he he was uh, he was known in Washington as uh, as a pleasant fellow, and he had met Theodore Roosevelt at the Metropolitan Club, which was a an important gathering place in the 1890s in Washington D.C. It was there that. Um, he began a friendship with Roosevelt, and so Roosevelt, after becoming Assistant Secretary of Navy, had arranged for Dewey to get one last hurrah to get command of the what was known as a U.S. Asiatic Squadron, and so uh, Dewey had uh, headed out to Asia in uh, uh, late 1897, and uh, and and so was there in early 19, uh, 1898 when uh, the Maine blew up um, and, and Roosevelt had uh, ordered Dewey to take his squadron to uh, Hong Kong to be ready to move to the Philippines, which was Spain's largest colony, and, and to be able to be ready to do battle with the Spaniards in the Philippines. And so uh, Dewey actually wound up striking the first blow in the Spanish-American War when he sailed into Manila Bay on May 1st, 1898, and, and uh, destroyed a decrepit Spanish fleet there, and then sent U.S. Marines uh, ashore to um, plant the, the Stars and Stripes at the Spanish naval base south of Manila. I, I love the, the vision you have of him sitting in, like, the deck chair. Right, <laughs> right. He's cloak cruising into the thing. He's like, he was a lucky guy. He, did, he could very well have ended up at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Uh, you know, he, he certainly he was fortunate. When he got his moment, he made the most of it. And mm-hmm. As the, did Roosevelt. Uh, absolutely. That it's interesting. Uh, I mean, history is a um, it's a quirky thing, and uh, um, and 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 some get those moments and make the most of them, and and some don't and vanish from the pages forever. But um, uh, Dewey was was calm and collected. That the 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 Americans um, the the naval buildup had certainly given the United States a decided advantage over the Spaniards. The Spaniards, the, the, their fleet, um, they had wooden ships, they were antiquated, the Spanish gunners couldn't uh, practice uh, uh, everything. Uh, they, they were on such a tight budget that they couldn't prepare for war, and so uh, they, they put up as, as good a fight as, as uh, they could have hoped to, but they were uh, just uh, hopelessly outmatched by the uh, modern weaponry and, and uh, the modern guns and armored ships that the United States had, and so uh, it, it was really a, a slaughter that naval engagements uh, at Manila Bay in the Philippines and at Santiago Bay in Cuba were very one-sided affairs. One of the things I love is you're, you do a great job of showing the intricate linking between domestic politics and foreign politics so that we see how um, McKinley, who's, who's trying to say that it, it, 
the ever popular in America spreading democracy like frosting across the world. He's going to give it a little dab over there in the Philippines, makes a deal with the Philippine rebels uh, that if they back off, we'll, we'll get rid of the Spaniards um, and then let them have their own kind of government. That certainly um, really cast the die, I think, for the U.S. Uh, relationship with the Filipinos was after Dewey had destroyed the Spanish fleet at, at Manila Bay, he brought back from exile the Filipino revolutionary leader Emilio Aguinaldo. Aguinaldo and other Filipino revolutionaries had launched a war for independence from Spain in 1896, so a year after uh, Cuban guerrillas had reignited their struggle against Spain, Filipino revolutionaries had launched a similar struggle against Spain. And so Aguinaldo uh, had, had risen to command the revolutionary forces there and had gone into exile when the Spaniards had, had reached a, a peace agreement with Aguinaldo and said that we'll, we'll make reforms, here's some money, leave the Philippines with your commanders. And, and uh, so Aguinaldo had gone to Hong Kong and had uh, deposited the, the payment that the Spaniards had made and was watching and waiting to see whether the Spaniards would really make reforms. Uh, the Spaniards didn't. Uh, Aguinaldo had uh, secured arms purchases and so was, was there watching events as they were unfolding uh, when the Spanish-American War began in, in uh, April 1898. And so um, Commodore Dewey, newly promoted to Admiral Dewey, had put Aguinaldo on a ship, brought him back to Manila Bay, and had brought him aboard his flagship, the legendary Olympia. And Dewey had sat Aguinaldo down and said, um, I want you to go ashore uh, and uh, uh, fight the Spaniards. Aguinaldo would say for the rest of his days that, that Dewey and other American diplomats had given him assurances that if he would go ashore and, and help the Americans defeat the Spaniards, that the United States, first of all, had no territorial interests in the Philippines, and second of all, would support Philippine independence. Dewey would deny this just as vehemently. What we know for sure is that Dewey sent Aguinaldo ashore with arms, and Aguinaldo and the Filipino revolutionaries succeeded quite well in driving the Spaniards back to the walls of Manila. And so by the time a U.S. expeditionary force arrived, in the Philippines in July of 1898, the hard work had, had really been done in terms of defeating the, the Spaniards at Manila. And so Aguinaldo was thinking throughout this period that he was going to be allowed to, to take power. He had declared a Republic of the Philippines in June of 1898 as these events were unfolding. But unbeknownst to him that, that Admiral Dewey and the American ground commander had secretly negotiated with the Spanish commander in Manila. And on August 13th, a sham battle was staged. The Americans were allowed to march into Manila. The Filipinos were kept at gunpoint outside the city. And at that point, the U.S. and Filipinos, uh, the Filipino forces were on a collision course. It's so fascinating to, to see this. And Roosevelt, at this time, he was still the Secretary of the Navy? No, he had, uh, he had resigned uh, that position uh, to go uh, command the Rough Riders in, mm -hmm. in Cuba, and so he had actually left 
Washington at the end of April or the 1st of May of uh, 1898. But he was getting ready to stump for it. We come up to um, the, the uh, election of 1900. After did we get get ourselves in, in what you call a nasty little war, right there in the Philippines with Otis, who was a micro manager, right. It, it to to back up a little bit in the fall of 1898 that these events uh, obviously the, the the relationship had been poisoned by what happened at Manila. The Americans were now in control of Manila, and Aguinaldo and his army uh, were dug in around the city, and so. The antagonisms between the Americans and the Filipinos grew almost by the day. The American forces by September of 1898 were, command, uh, were commanded by uh, General L. Otis, who was uh, on paper uh, seemed to be a good commander. He had a Harvard Law degree and, and he had other pedigrees that uh, you know, certainly seemed to make him a desirable choice. But he had suffered a head wound in the Civil War, and so he was an insomniac. And he also was not a very sociable sort. He didn't participate in the, the very active Army social scene in Manila, didn't go to the Army-Navy club, didn't go on the carriage rides along the waterfront parkway there that, that was very popular with American officers and their ladies. Otis would sit in the Malacanang Palace, which was the, uh, the old Spanish seat of power that, that he had taken over, and would um, he, he would would work on his reports until late in the evening, didn't socialize much, didn't meet Filipinos. In fact, he would never deign to even meet Emilio Aguinaldo, the Filipino revolutionary leader, although he said all sorts of, of very critical things about Aguinaldo, calling him a liar and a, and a murderer and a thief and, and various things, that Otis didn't have much firsthand information at all. And this, unfortunately, was the man that was supposed to be managing America's relations with the Philippines at a very, very delicate motion. And so uh, these tensions continued to grow until early 1899, February 1899, as the U.S. Senate was about to vote to annex the Philippines which was another act that the Filipino revolutionaries viewed as really the ultimate betrayal that the United States did indeed have territorial ambitions there and was not going to allow Philippine independence. And so uh, two days before the U.S. Senate vote on the treaty that the insults and altercations between U.S. and Filipinos finally boiled over and shots were fired and war began on uh, February 4th, 1899. That was the Battle of 2-5 with Fred led by, uh, forces led by Frederick Funston. House-to-house combat, terror, I mean, it's just, again, all too familiar from our recent experiences, adventures abroad. The initial outbreak of fighting that, I mean, there, there were certainly some uh, anxious moments that Aguinaldo did have urban forces that, uh, that attempted to uh, uh, seize Manila, and there were great fears among the Americans and other foreigners in Manila that, that the revolutionaries were going to slaughter all foreigners. It, it turned out... Um, that, that, that threat was short-lived, and the, the Filipino urban forces were defeated in a, in a day or two of uh, quite intense house-to-house fighting. In the conventional war in the countryside that uh, Aguinaldo, again, was just, his forces were completely overmatched by the Americans. He didn't have heavy weaponry. The artillery that he had, much of it was captured in the initial day or two of fighting when the American forces went on the offensive on a 16-mile front. And so uh, it, it was an extremely one-sided 
conventional war that uh, there are many photographs in the National Archives, uh, some of them I I have in the book, that show uh, trenches filled with with dead Filipinos. They were fighting like with uh, Bolo. They're kind of uh, machetes against guns. I mean, that's a problem. (laughs) Right. Uh, You know, as things uh, sort of devolved into a guerrilla war, I mean, initially they they did have weaponry uh, rifles and and things, but uh, much of those armaments were captured in the early days uh, of, of the fighting, and the Filipinos didn't have the training that the Americans have. Uh, there were a number of instances of where American soldiers were shot, but the cartridges were defective, and so the, the bullets didn't even penetrate uh, the uniforms. And so, uh, you know, if the Filipinos had had better weapons and better training, then uh, they might have been able to fare better better in the conventional phase of the war. But they, they realized that. They, they were, Aguinaldo was saved momentarily by the onset of the rainy season in 1899 in June of 1899. And then when the Americans resumed the offensive in the fall of 1899, Aguinaldo's army was routed fairly quickly. But before retreating into the mountains of northern Luzon, he had gathered his commanders and they agreed that that a conventional war against the Americans was not practical. And so they had um, agreed to launch a guerrilla war. So as the Americans were celebrating their apparent victory over Aguinaldo and his army, and General Arthur MacArthur, one of the field commanders, was uh, uh, sending a uh, telegram to Manila declaring that the, the Philippine Republic has been destroyed. Aguinaldo's forces were breaking into smaller groups and preparing to launch a, a very, very bloody guerrilla war. And once we once uh, this devolved into guerrilla war, that's when uh, American troops start, first started uh, administering what they called the water cure. Right. Um, the, the the as the the, the guerrilla war got underway, uh, really in earnest in early 1900, that uh, uh, within a within a few months, that Filipino forces had managed to fight the Americans to a stalemate in, in many areas. And, and uh, in part, the reason was that the U.S. didn't have uh, adequate troop levels in the Philippines, that uh, as they had pushed further into the countryside, that they had outrun their lines of supply. And so- Again, w- all very familiar. <laughs> a- a- absolutely, <laughs> it, it, no, it was- It's uh, so. uh, it, it it's, uh, really is, some of the parallels are amazing mm-hmm. that uh, you know inadequate troop levels didn't anticipate the guerrilla war, that there had been diplomatic reports. Our, our man on the scene, a political um, uh, appointee who had been the U.S. Consul General in Manila, a man named Oscar Williams, an interesting character that had largely been lost to history, was reporting that Filipinos were uh, would welcome us with open arms. They would <laughs> greet us as liberators. And again, this, this sounds rather familiar. Also, and it, it turned out not to be the case. And so General Otis, who uh, was eager to please uh, his superiors back in Washington and was something of a penny pincher, was assuring Washington, I have adequate troops to handle any situation here, that we're fine. And once the guerrilla war happened and the U.S. was forced to defend lines of, of communication, lines of supply, and then garrison towns further and further into the countryside, there simply weren't adequate troops to fight the guerrillas, to conduct offensive operations, and to uh, protect those lines of supply and communication and protect Filipinos 
in the towns that, that had been occupied, protect those that had decided to cooperate with the Americans that uh, we couldn't provide sec security. And so when U.S. troops would pull out and move on to another town to conduct offensive operations, the guerrillas would come into those towns and punish quite often as uh, summarily execute uh, the Filipinos who had cooperated with the Americans. So obviously this had a very chilling effect then if, if Filipinos saw that we could not guarantee their security, they were not going to cooperate with uh, the American occupation force. And it, it's, as you say, there's so many interesting parallels between then and now. And one of the, because they couldn't tell, one of the problems was they couldn't tell who was a guerrilla and who was just a farmer or somebody. And so they started questioning people with this, what they called the water cure. It, Tell us about the water cure. Right. The, the water cure was a, an old Spanish torture. It actually dated back to the uh, Spanish Inquisition when the Catholic Church uh, had strictures on what interrogations could and could not do when they were trying to uh, ferret out heretics. And so uh, the, the rules of the Inquisition uh, prohibited the interrogation methods that would uh, bring blood or leave marks. The water cure was developed as this method of, it, we've heard it many times, obviously described as simulated drowning, or it, it actually is the, you know, the early stage of drowning, and was quite painful because as the, the water was forced down into the stomach, then it would start to um, you know, squeeze and cause pain in the internal organs. And so it was, uh, would cause sensations like cutting and burning in inter internal organs organs and so uh, extremely painful that the Spaniards had carried that to the Philippines with them and so the US troops had discovered this they they had some Filipino forces uh, some ethnic groups had decided to work with the Americans this torture using water became known as the water cure because it cured Filipinos of their amnesia when they were questioned about the presence of guerrillas or arms caches and things like that and so this became the preferred method of interrogation for U.S. troops in many parts of the country. And, and we know that because um, of the later trials, uh, the courts martial that occurred, that it was used on many, most of the main islands. And some troops even traveled with syringes and things in their saddlebags, which uh, they would use then to uh, force the water into a, uh, into a prisoner's mouth. They would put a a stick or a gun barrel in, in the mouth and then force the water into the, uh, the stomach and then sometimes pound uh, with fists or, or uh, stomp on the victim's stomach once it was filled and uh, the water would be expelled and then begin the process anew. So that became a widely used me method of interrogating prisoners. Now, I, meanwhile, at home, uh, there's an, an election going on and I, I'd like you to just talk very quickly about you know Teddy Roosevelt working his way from uh, the vice president and uh, they they were alarmed to put, to put him on the ticket they said you, you put this guy on the ticket he's a heartbeat away from being the president <laughs> right right uh, Roosevelt had had ridden his Cuba fame actually first to become governor of New York in the elections of 1898 so in November 1898 he had been elected governor of New York and had continued to speak out about the Philippines, about the importance of the United States keeping the Philippines and putting down uh, what was known as an insurrection. 
in the Philippines. And insurrection, insurgency, yes. <laughs> uh, exa- exactly, that they were known as the uh, the insurrectos is what the Filipinos were referred to, uh, the, the, the Filipino uh, Revolutionary Forces. Roosevelt had been brought on the ticket for the election of 1900, which was obviously a very, a very pivotal uh, election. Both parties uh, heading into the, the election had declared that they believed that the Philippines would be the most important issue. And so everyone was gearing up for this great, great fight over that, that would settle the question of expansion, annexation of the Philippines. So Roosevelt had, uh, had gone out in the campaign of 1900. McKinley had repeated his, his performance of 1896. He had gone back to his home in Canton, Ohio, and sat on his front porch. While Roosevelt really took command of the campaign, the Democrats once again ran William Jennings Bryan as their candidate. Bryan was persuaded that he needed to accept that the Philippines was the paramount issue, but his heart was really with his his populist economic beliefs and his his policies, the, the free silver issue. And so he after an initial flurry of activity where Brian was uh, speaking out on the Philippines and describing this really as a betrayal of America's founding principles, a betrayal of our commitment to liberty and, and the ideal of consent of the governed, he very eloquently laid out these issues, infuriating Roosevelt and McKinley. Uh, the Republicans had, had, had struck back. So uh, the, the, the campaign shaped up. Brian very quickly abandoned the issue of the Philippines. And Roosevelt essentially seized control of the campaign. He delivered 673 speeches from one end of the country uh, to the other. They were very scathing attacks, uh, uh, warning Americans that they would suffer social unrest and ec- economic disaster at home and disgrace abroad if they elected Bryan and the Democrats. And so uh, the, the, the great test over expansion as an issue uh, never really happened. The Republicans won the election quite handily. And so Roosevelt then became uh, vice president um, in uh, November of 1900. Well, I love the, your uh, vision of his character, the way we see him throughout this book, the way we see him change. We see his drive. We see the admirable parts of him. He was a dedicated man, but he was a persistent guy and maybe always not in the best possible way for both himself and the nation. Uh, that's true, that he, he had tremendous energy. I mean, as we know from the things he did as president, the creation of the national park system, the taking on the, the big business trusts and the uh, safe food and drugs and other progressive measures such as that, that Roosevelt was a man of, of great vision and wasn't uh, afraid to take on vested political interests. But I, I was really struck by the, the vehemence with which he scorned anyone who disagreed with him, that he, that he never viewed his opponents as, as people having an honest difference of opinion, that uh, on the issue of the Philippines, I mean, he, he uh, disparaged anyone who disagreed with him on the importance of annexing the Philippines and conquering the Philippines by force of arms. He, he would describe them as senile or as unhung traitors, uh, all, all manner of uh, uh, epithets he, he would throw at, at, at anyone who disagreed with him. And, and you do a great job, too, of showing the situation in the Philippines just going to hell. Oh, we, we didn't have enough troops. 
what was the, the reports coming back were full of sunlight and joy. What was happening on the ground was not that. Eventually, it all blew up at uh, Balangiga. It the the, the war. Um, I mean, the, the Filipino guerrillas did manage to um, fight the Americans to a stalemate in a, in a number of areas. In 1900, they launched a, an offensive that they timed to the, uh, the U.S. election in the fall of 1900. And so the U.S. suffered a number of setbacks, suffered some of the heaviest casualties in the war that fall of 1900. As soon as the election was won, the, the Republicans had uh, once again secured the White House. The American ground commander at the time, General Arthur MacArthur, father of Douglas MacArthur, launched a military offensive and mass arrests and so really escalated the pressure on the resistance movement in the Philippines. The military offensive, operations had been harsh, but they got even more harsh. And uh, there, there was a very famous incident that happened on uh, the island of Panay in the, uh, the central Philippines uh, in November 1900. A crack army unit had ridden into town uh, along with a, a very famous American intelligence operative by the name of Edwin Glenn. And uh, they had interrogated town officials. The town president was uh, given the water cure. A couple of other officials were given the water cure, confessed under torture that they were uh, involved in the underground, uh, the guerrilla organization, had been forced to lead American troops into the countryside then th that day in search of the guerrilla uh, commander on the island. When they couldn't find the, the, the guerrilla commander and the Americans returned to town that evening, the town of uh, Igbaras, the American commander on the scene, uh, Captain Glenn, later Major Glenn, ordered the town burned. And so this was a town of, a quite sizable town of several thousand people and uh, uh, more than 500 structures. And it was uh, largely burned to the ground. The, the, the stone church and some other stone buildings were the only thing that was left standing. All of this, incidentally, later came out in U.S. Senate hearings. Well-documented incident. This, this is um, not something that was hearsay, that it was testified to by a number of soldiers who were there, and Major Glenn didn't dispute any of this either. It was an incident that really, to some extent, came to, to symbolize the later uh, stages of the war. You know, uh, one of the things, that I, there's a great character, Hell-Roaring Jake. <laughs> And he's he's a guy who who uh, really initiates the some of the the worst atrocities that are kind of at the center of this book. So give us just a little picture of of who he was, and, and you know, he issued one set of orders that was down on uh, on paper, and that's some scary stuff he said. Jacob Hurd Smith was uh, I I like to describe him as one of the most colorful rogues ever to wear the uniform. He he was a uh, in a book filled with characters that, that I was I found fascinating and interesting. Smith was was certainly right up there with, with uh, uh, among the most interesting. He had uh, fought in, in the Civil War, had, he had grown up in Ohio and, and uh, had been uh, uh, severely wounded at the Battle of Shiloh in 1862 and had uh, been shot in the hip. And so he spent the remainder of the war in Louisville, Kentucky as an army recruiter uh, for the Union. And Louisville uh, it was on the Ohio River, and it was a, a border town, and so it was this great, raucous place of intrigue and all sorts of profiteering and you know, nefarious activities going on. And so uh, Jake Smith wound up in the middle of all this, and uh, he specialized in recruiting freed slaves. And so uh, you had northern municipalities were desperate 
to fill quotas, that they had to provide a certain number of troops under the Union draft at the time. And so these brokers would come down representing various uh, northern states and cities looking for recruits. And so a lot of them hooked up with Jake Smith in Louisville, Kentucky, and offer a bounty. They, would, they, they basically would, uh, would, would offer a, a bonus for troops that would sign up. Uh, Jake Smith managed to rip off a number of bounty brokers, got, got himself some, uh, some seed cash, used that, uh, used that to uh, invest in bootleg uh, whiskey, diamonds, and uh, other commodities, and so ended the Civil War with, um, with a, a sizable uh, sum of money, which he then used to buy a farm in Illinois. Uh, he left the Army but uh, got bored within a couple of years, and so he, he went back in, into the Army in uh, 1867 and uh, was see, uh, seeking a judge advocate's position, uh, which would have been a nice, uh, cushy position. And uh, a, a lawsuit, though, had been filed that his father-in-law was a uh, notorious war profiteer uh, who had uh, ripped off uh, the wrong person uh, who had filed a lawsuit. And so this lawsuit caught up with Jake Smith and, and uh, all of these uh, sordid affairs that he had been involved in in the Civil War came out. And, uh, you know, these wonderful handwritten, uh, you know, depositions and things that are in his, his military file. Did you read those? Uh, oh, absolutely. Oh, that I, sounds I, like fun. <laughs> I, it, was, uh, it was fascinating reading. I mean, it's a, it's a huge file, and it, it was a guilty pleasure uh, reading Jake Smith's military file. Was he, uh, as, uh, as, raw, uh, was he as raw in, when he wrote as he is in, in the book? I mean... Uh, you know, he, he, he really, uh, you know, he wasn't uneducated, mm-hmm. and uh, um, so, so he was... But, but he was uh, a man uh, that was given to poor judgment. Mm-hmm. He was given to, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, sort of uh, bombastic pronouncements and things. And uh, he had had uh, trouble through the uh, uh, 1870s and 1880s with disciplinary uh, actions that he had, uh, insubordination and things like that. He, he had ducked out on a gambling debt during a, a posting uh, to Army outpost in uh, Texas and so had been court-martialed. For that, and then uh, uh, had tried to rig the court martial and, and threaten witnesses, and so that, that nearly got him kicked out of the army. He managed to get uh, political supporters in Ohio to go to bat uh, for him and saved his his career. But Smith was something; he, he's something like a, a, a Forrest Gump-like character. He keeps showing up on these important army stages, and so on July 1st, 1898. When Theodore Roosevelt is leading American troops up the right flank of the American line on the San Juan Heights outside Santiago in Cuba, Jake Smith winds up uh, anchoring the left of the American line and late in the day took a bullet in the chest, but it uh, apparently was a a spent bullet because it it hit him in the chest but did not cause serious damage and in fact he uh, managed to, to stay in the field for a couple of days, which won him uh, great accolades from his uh, commanders. And so he was sent to the Philippines in command of a regiment, as a colonel in command of a regiment in early 1899. And while he was there, he was, uh, uh, became known as this very aggressive, energetic commander. He built a crude prison built out of rails. Open-air prison. An open-air prison known as Smith's Cage. And... Uh, uh, which was, you know, all documented approvingly by the American-owned newspaper in Manila, 
And Smith was named a military uh, governor of three central Luzon provinces uh, north of Manilas, and then wound up being promoted to brigadier general in 1901, which was uh, quite a remarkable thing for a man with uh, a disciplinary file of, of this length. So, uh, and then, as uh, fate would have it, in the, uh, the fall of, of uh, 1901, Jake Smith was uh, sent to the wild central island of Samar to uh, preside over one of the final American campaigns that was one of two last remaining bastions of Filipino resistance. And you had mentioned the, uh, the Balangiga, uh, an American outpost had been overrun by Filipinos in September of 1901, and, and 48 U.S. soldiers out of 74 present had been killed, and it had been a shocking event in the United States, uh, described uh, as the Balangiga Massacre. American newspapers, with shame and outrage, had declared it the worst debacle the Army had suffered since uh, Custer's defeat at the Little Bighorn 25 years earlier. So Smith was sent to uh, Samar Island to clean up the island and to wage a uh, ruthless campaign. I, I should note that this was a particularly critical moment for Theodore Roosevelt because 14 days before the uh, uh, attack at Balangiga, he had become president when uh, William McKinley had died from an assassin's bullet. So the war had suddenly become Theodore Roosevelt's war, and he also issued orders to his secretary of war end resistance in the Philippines. And so Jake Smith became the American commander on, on which much was riding. And he had under him a, a, a Marine hero, one of the guys who had kind of helped make the reputations of the Marines. It, absolutely. Uh, Tony Waller uh, was a, a fascinating character, and he figures prominently in my book that Waller was from an aristocratic Virginia family, a, a family that, that, uh, whose roots uh, really went back to uh, the very early years of Virginia as a colony. His grandfather had been a U.S. senator and governor of Virginia who had advised Thomas Jefferson and uh, had been a very, very prominent individual. And so Waller had gone into the Marine Corps in uh, 1880 and had risen to prominence by the time of the Spanish-American War, was sent to the Philippines. The Marines weren't seeing combat much of the time. The Army didn't think much of them and had basically the Marines uh, were relegated to uh, guarding, uh, you know, supply depots and, and things of that nature and uh, 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 the naval base uh, south of Manila. And so Waller and other Marines were chafing at uh, wanting to get involved in, in the fighting and uh, weren't allowed to. But Waller had, fate had, had um, suddenly smiled on him in the summer of 1900 when anti-foreigner violence had broken out in China. Uh, what became known as the Boxer Rebellion. And so Waller led a battalion of Marines to China, and they were the first U.S. troops on the ground. And they acquitted themselves quite well, and, and so Waller became a national hero, and, and uh, his name was splashed across the front pages uh, uh, of uh, American newspapers by virtue of the heroics uh, of he and his men in the Boxer Re Rebellion in the summer of 1900 and then had returned to the Philippines as things were winding down there. But Waller then, in the fall of 1900, was sent to Samar, was given uh, a contingent of Marines and put under the command of General Jacob Hurd Smith as the uh, Samar campaign was about to get underway. 
the actions that they undertook led to the trials that are the climax of this book. And I was almost going to say novel because it reads like that. <laughs> and and the, uh, the page-turning factor here, intensity of what happens to them in the heat of war, uh, is just, again, such a reminder of contemporary, our contemporary experience. Because one thing that you point out, I think, throughout this book is that we Americans, we send our troops over there, but we are not ever, we have the enemies, the you know, people are shooting us, but one of our biggest enemies is the climate. We're not prepared for some of these environments we end up in. Right, and and one thing I, w I really want to underscore is that my, my book is, I, I'm not a polemicist, I'm not an ideologue. Uh, this, this book is a, a very faithful and scrupulous recounting of events that I've documented through uh, military records, through Theodore Roosevelt's letters, the letters of other key participants, and it reads uh, with very nuanced. That's one of the things I really like about it. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like you're on anybody's side, but we get a really full picture of everybody, and they're all really complicated people. Uh, well, thank you, and I, I, I really worked hard to try to do that. That I, I don't believe in taking a stick and and hitting people over the head with it. That what I, what I wanted people to do with this book. One, I, I wanted them to discover a, a chapter of American history that has been largely forgotten because I think it's an important chapter. And I think that, that as citizens that, that we really are obligated to know our history. We need to make informed decisions. Whatever that decision is, whatever your political persuasion is, know the history and, and make an informed decision. And so I really have sympathy and empathy for soldiers that are put in a situation of where they, they are fighting an insurgency, they are fighting uh, guerrillas. As I'd mentioned earlier that I, I wrote a book on the communist revolutionary movement in mm -hmm. the Philippines, and so I, I went inside a guerrilla organization, and I know the, the tactics and methods of operation, and I understand the frustrations that a duly constituted army faces when they are fighting against a revolutionary force, an outlaw force. And so it, it was a, an extremely difficult war for the American soldiers. And I can only imagine what it was like to be a young man sent to this place. The climate was brutal. The mosquito and waterborne diseases in a tropical climate were debilitating. And then to be fighting an opponent that was uh, extremely elusive. And there, there was a racial component as well that, that at the time that Filipinos' prevailing racial, uh, racial attitudes were that people of color were not our intellectual equals. And so that factored into uh, the, the mindset that soldiers uh, took into battle uh, in the Philippines. So you, you have this, this oppressive climate, this frustrating war, this elusive enemy, you're taking casualties, the temptation to take shortcuts is great. And that certainly is one of the lessons that I think that we can take away from this is that we need to know, Americans need to know, that uh, wars of conquest are hard. Guerrilla wars are harder still. And the temptations are always going to be there to take these shortcuts. We, we need to know that going in. We need to know it's going to be a long, hard fight. And I think that those things are very easily forgotten. And I think that that's, that's what the, the, the Philippines uh, teaches us. Certainly that 
those final campaigns in the Philippines, the Samar campaign that uh, Jacob Smith uh, waged on, and, and Tony Waller's Marines fought in, and then in uh, Batangas, uh, a Luzon province that, that is just south of Manila, they weren't representative of the entire war, but the war had been moving in that direction steadily, and, and so those became really the extreme concluding campaigns in Batangas, mass resettlement of the population into resettlement camps or concentration camps, if you will. I don't use the term concentration camps in my book because I, I think that that is now uh, so ingrained in our minds with the, uh, the Nazi death camps of World War II. These weren't death camps per se, where we were resettling the Filipinos. The, the uh, American military commander in Batangas was trying to separate the population, deprive the guerrillas of support. And anytime you start massing large numbers of civilians in very small confined spaces, then uh, they're going to be very vulnerable to uh, disease, and, and that's what happened. And, and many thousands died in these resettlement camps. You know, on Samar, some similar things happened that the population was basically forced to coastal enclaves that were under American control, and uh, anything, anybody in the interior was uh, pretty much shot on sight. Water buffalo were, were slaughtered, which was obviously going to create uh, famine and extreme hardships on, on the population. Anyone, any Filipino seen in the interior was considered a combatant. And uh, so essentially the interior of Samar was turned into uh, one huge free fire zone. And so it was a, a very harsh campaign. And General Smith had, in fact, directed Tony Waller and his Marines when, when they uh, were prepared to head out into, into the uh, southern uh, uh, reaches of Samar to kill everyone over the age of 10 uh, and to kill and burn, to leave the area howling wilderness. Waller didn't execute those orders to the letter, but he and his Marines uh, still waged a, a very severe campaign. I think one of the things, I, I don't want to give away what happens at the end because I think uh, with, with regards to the trials, because I, when I read that I was really shocked and I thought that was one of the things you do really well is create suspense out of history. And that's a tough gig to pull off. Part of that's because this history isn't so well known, but the other part is just uh, good writing too. It was dramatic for me. Mm -hmm. uh, these, these events and these trials were really the hook that originally had gotten me into this story um, more than 25 years ago, that I, I was fascinated uh, that I hadn't read this history, I hadn't heard this history. And so uh, they were quite dramatic. They were, uh, it was front page news back in America. These trials were unfolding in the Philippines, uh, uh, trials of American officers accused of various offenses, executing prisoners and, and torture and other things that were uh, violations uh, of the walls of war. And so they were very closely followed, and, and uh, it created uh, uh, great political problems for Theodore Roosevelt in the first year of his presidency. And at the same time, we had Senate hearings that began in, uh, uh, in January of uh, 1902. So uh, uh, the trials actually started with the trial of Major Waller in uh, March of 1902. So the Senate hearings had been underway several weeks uh, when the first uh, uh, of these trials unfolded. And uh, it became um, a, a, a very big uh, political 
concern for Roosevelt, and that, that is very clear if you read the cable traffic between the, the War Department in Washington and the American High Command in the Philippines, that uh, there, there is growing urgency in, in those cables of, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's going on there and uh, uh, no more surprises, uh, that sort of thing. And, and uh, I like that because that just seems, again, so contemporary, so now. It's nice to know that we can, that it's all here in an easily readable form, so perhaps we can learn from history. I certainly believe we can. <laughs> I, I, I hope that the book, uh, if you read it, that um, um, you, you learn about this forgotten chapter, you learn about how America became a world power, and uh, I, I hope that uh, people think, uh, relate that history to contemporary uh, uh, events and situations as well. That's one of the things I think that makes it such a great book to read is because it really, as you're reading an exciting story that took place a hundred years ago, it you cannot help but think about the dire stories that have transpired over the last 10 years. And it's just a very fascinating mixed reading experience. I enjoyed writing it. And <laughs> uh, I, I hope that comes through that I, I loved uh, doing the research. I. I, I enjoy immersing myself in something where I learn as well, and uh, and then I'm excited to share that with with readers. That you know, uh, there's this interesting character that I didn't know anything about. You know, I want I want I want other people then to be able to uh, to rediscover this. So it, it was a wonderful voyage of discovery for me, and um, um, and and so I I, I hope uh, readers find that as well. I've been speaking with Greg Jones. His new book is Honor in the Dust, Theodore Roosevelt, War in the Philippines, and the Rise and Fall of America's Imperial Dream. Thank you for joining me, Greg. Thanks, Rick, so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.